and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Tom Beekbane. So Tom has written a new book, which came out in January 2021, and it's called How to Understand Everything, Consilience, A New Way to See the World. So it's a pretty bold title, How to Understand Everything. And we have a nice tongue-in-cheek moment during the conversation where Tom says he wants to kind of asterisk what it really means to understand everything. Since Tom is not naive in this choice of title, he knows what understanding everything really means. It's more about understanding what we know and what is knowable and also how we know, which is, for Tom, always via the brain. So I wanted to quickly explain the title of Tom's book because I think it captures his core message and it's also kind of the core focus of our conversation today. So for Tom, the brain is the filter to the world. Everything that we know about reality, all of our categorizations and theories and experiences, they all happen via the brain. So we have to understand the brain in order to understand everything else. And in order to know, you know, what features belong to reality itself and what features are constructed by us in our interactions with the world, we have to understand, you know, how our brains shape our experiences and how our brains structure the world, and structure experience. So that is why, for understanding everything, it's so important to start with brains, as Tom argues. You might say it's how to frame everything. We have to frame everything in terms of what the brain is doing, and not just our brains, but the the brains of all organisms, the neuronal systems of human beings and other mammals and other organisms. But it kind of goes a level deeper than that, because we're not just talking about how brains understand things, we're also talking about our understanding of how brains understand things. It's kind of amusingly recursive, and that's why I called this episode Understanding How Brains Understand, you know, which it's meant to sound a bit facetious. But we are stuck in this loop, you know, of if our brains are the filter for understanding everything about reality, then we in turn have to understand the brain. But of course that understanding is taking place via our brains and the brains of neurobiologists and philosophers. So we're in this loop of understanding how brains understand and our brains are doing that understanding. So anyway, that was my slightly facetious episode title, nodding to the recursive knowledge process that we're caught up in when we're talking about this topic. So in this conversation, I tried to hone in on those core themes from the book. And you'll hear me kind of for the first half of the conversation, I'm trying to pin down, you know, for the benefit of you, the listener, what Tom is really trying to encapsulate with his book, you know, the main ideas. But we talk about many other related things, like the unity of knowledge between different disciplines, the convergence of different disciplines and perspectives, mathematics, you know, how we can think about the metaphysics of mathematics, whether it's, you know, constructed by brains or whether mathematics is somehow independent of human construct and human thought. And we talk about plenty of examples from maths that apply to reality, like the Fibonacci series, which can describe plant leaves and snail shells and spiral galaxies. And we talk about the mathematics of complex systems, which can explain things like brains and hurricanes and pandemics. We talk about consciousness 
and the neurobiological approach to studying consciousness. And we talk more generally about, you know, the, the links between empirical science and philosophy and what philosophy might look like in the future. But having said that, you know, there was still so much more from Tom's book that we didn't get to discuss. Tom's book is very broad. He covers a lot of different topics, not just topics related to the brain, but also, you know, to culture, society, religion, climate science. So if you do go and read Tom's book, you'll read about an even wider set of issues than we get to talk about in this conversation. And you'll see Tom's slightly provocative and non-standard treatment of some of those issues. And I really wish we had more time to dig into some of these topics, because I think that Tom and I would have a great debate on a large number of these issues that we didn't cover, but there just wasn't time. So we stuck to kind of the core themes from the book. And the good news is, you know, we agreed on lots of things. We agree broadly about a neurobiological approach to studying things like consciousness and human behavior. We agree that we should be mixing metaphysics and epistemology with neurobiology. So this agreement gave us, you know, a, a rather significant common base. You know, we, we did find a pretty solid springboard of things we could agree on that, you know, I think formed the basis for a useful conversation. And I'll also say that Tom's book is very accessible. Before you read the book, you don't need to know anything about neuroscience or sociology or philosophy because Tom walks you through all these topics in quite a nice, accessible way. And I also hope that we manage to be accessible in this conversation. As you'll hear near the start of this conversation, Tom has a pretty non-standard background for a popular science author. For most of his career, he's worked in marketing and branding, and he's an entrepreneur. He's the president of Beakbane Brand Strategies and Communications. So all of these perspectives and all of this experience feeds into what he writes in this book and he's writing from a kind of a non-academic anti-academia stance as he says himself and lastly you know full disclosure from behind the scenes here tom was actually the first guest who approached me to be interviewed as opposed to you know me going out and approaching guests which was the the pattern up till then and since then you know other interviewees have approached me but it was exciting when I first read Tom's email. You know, it was an exciting moment for me and for the podcast. The first sign that the podcast was starting to grow. So just to say that I'm glad that the podcast is growing, that I keep getting amazing guests to talk to every week. And thanks to all of you, the listeners, for following along in this process. I hope you've enjoyed seeing this podcast develop from its very early days in 2020 until now when I'm interviewing exciting people every week. And if you do enjoy listening to the podcast, please share it with your friends, because that's really the best way to reach new people. So, without further delay, I bring you Tom Beekbane. So, I'm delighted to be here today with Tom Beekbane. Uh, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. So pleased to be here. Wonderful. So you're here today because you've written a book and it's called How to Understand Everything, Consilience, A New Way to See the World. Um, so now I want to start by talking a bit about your background because you don't have the traditional background of a popular science author. Uh, of course, you, you have a degree in biochemistry and neurophysiology, which really shines through in the, the first couple of chapters in the book about the brain and the gut and the nervous system. Uh, but you also have uh, a lot of experience in marketing, entrepreneurship, self-motivated learning. So it's not the traditional path of academia. It might be almost anti-academia. 
So I'm wondering, you know, uh, which route taught you more about humans and brains and the world? Was it your academic training in neurophysiology or was it your experience in the world of business and the world of humans? Well, I have to say I had an extraordinary education uh, and was blessed with, uh, with school teachers and institutions that were really quite remarkable. The part that I loved most about my education was that I had access to the woodworking shop, the pottery shop, the art shop, um, metalworking, and, and, and also the science laboratories, so I could uh, goof around there. And so I, I think you could say that I, I learned most about people from, from struggling through the school system because I wasn't, I, I wasn't a book learner. I was a, a boy who was probably verging on having uh, ADHD, and, and certainly, I don't have a, a good memory for words, but funnily enough, I, I have a very visual brain. And so I, I, I think in relations and, 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 and in three dimensions. I, don't, I, don't, I, I can hardly remember words, which, which put me at a severe disadvantage in the school system. So I, I studied neurophysiology and biochemistry at, uh, at university, but I think I probably learned more about people when I was... Um, manager of the, the, the health food store at, at university uh, at Durham. There was a, a store and it, it, it did quite a lot of meaningful business. I, I think its sales were a couple of million pounds a year. So uh, I, I started to learn about business there and people. And, and, and I set up the Durham University Industrial Society. And then it just sort of carried on from there. Uh, I was fortunate to get a job in, in London, England, uh, where I worked with some of the top-notch multinational agencies, advertising agencies, including Saatchi and Saatchi. And, you know, my colleagues were from Oxford and Cambridge, and, and they were very bright and well-read. So I, I, I never felt as though I was the smartest person in the room by, by a long shot. So that's a, that's a long way of saying that my, my interest in, in science and, and philosophy and history, that they've been uh, private interests of mine. Uh, but I've mostly learned from working with people uh, in, in many, many, many different industries uh, over the last you know, 40 years, over 40 years. And uh, yeah, the whole book is about me trying to sort of wrap everything together. You know, my personal interest in science and history and sociology and psychology with the realities of actually dealing with people, because there's, there's always been a, a massive gap in, in my head. Yeah, and you do try to really bring everything together in such a broad way in the book. Especially, I see this cross-fertilization between business and science. So in the introduction, you say companies are petri dishes of human interactions. Markets are living laboratories of human behavior. And then in, in chapter two, you talk about marketing as an academic discipline, you know, thinking almost scientifically about the business world. And it's interesting, I think this comparison can run in both directions. Patricia Farah is someone who talks about business incentives in science. So, you know, science is often driven by things like making a living and then also personal things like rivalries, grudges, even just getting bored. So it seems to be that science can be businesslike and also business can be scientific. So what do you think about those, that kind of cross-fertilization between the two? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to drive you crazy in the, in the next while, uh, Jeff, because I, I don't subscribe to these the, these labels without really digging into them. You know, what do you mean by business like? like what do you mean by science like? My, my experience that, that is that science and business and every other realm of life, wh whether it's religion or art or uh, travel, 
it's all made up of people interacting and communicating. Uh, and, and if you tear it down, the differences between science and business and, and religion and, and shooting the shit in the pub, it's all very, very, very similar. And, and, and my whole argument is when you actually look at how the brain works, that we imagine that sort of it's, it's compartmentalized and the logical parts and the emotional parts. Well, f- frankly, that's a scientific mythology. It's actually bullshit. So I, I just don't see, uh, from my experience of dealing with scientists and business people and engineers and doctors and physicians and, uh, and all the different people that I, that I work with day to day, that there's much of a difference. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive you crazy if you don't mind. No, I like that because you talk about this kind of pontification or pontified terms in the book and you're opposed to using, you know, we have lots of these shorthand terms like business, science, and you also give examples like evolution, creationism, climate change. And these are all pontified. Yeah. They're all a, sh- a shorthand term for a much more complex reality underneath it. But at the same time, we need these kind of, you know, catchy formulations. We need notations to talk about what we're what we're discussing. And I think going one level deeper on your kind of marketing and branding background, this is the brand of the idea or the kind of discipline. So you, you do talk about needing to give something a clear branding name. And can, can we really get away from using labels uh, or do we need them to talk about the underlying phenomena? Yeah, of course we need them. Every word is a is a, a label or a metaphor of some sort. What's driven me a little crazy in marketing is that marketers historically use categories. You know, we divide up people into wealthy people or or less wealthy people, males and females, moms and and kids, and and um, different psychographic and demographic groups. And, and my experience is that while those are useful. It, it's dangerous to treat them as meaningful, frankly, as scientifically meaningful, because they're constantly changing. And, and the way someone behaves changes from moment to moment. So just because a mom is buying baby milk formula at a, at a supermarket at one moment doesn't, doesn't mean to say a dad or a grandpa or whomever else is, is, is not going to buy that. So I while we attach words to things and, 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 and indeed we cannot communicate without words and, and, and the categorizations we attach to things, that's not the way the world works. The world is, and, I, and I'm sure we'll dig into this because it, it relates to your metaphysics and, and, and epistemology, but the, the, the world doesn't actually adhere to these pre-existing categories in the way that our brain understands it. Yes, and let's talk about consilience in a moment. But my last jibe before we do on the topic of brands and labels. So you're, you're opposed to things that are pontified. But I would argue that, you know, even the term consilience is a pontification. Yeah. And so is the term extrapolator. So as much as we want to escape them, we, we carry around these terms with us. Exactly. Yeah, we, we can't escape them. Uh, I, th- I think where consilience becomes useful is, is that it teaches you Whenever you hear a word that has become what I call a tribal banner, in other words, it's become pointified in, in my terminology, you slow down and, and, and you sort of, you don't get angry immediately. You just try and understand what the, the person means by that word. So, um, you know, extrapolator is a, is a beautiful word and, and it, it encapsulates what you are trying to do with this podcast. And uh it's not that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it, 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 it's a beautiful way of expressing what you're doing. 
where pointification becomes a problem is when you it's attached to tribal banners you know and in my way of thinking black lives matter and um lgbtq plus and what have you they've become tribal banners as have vaccines and i think when complex matters become pointified and they become tribal banners it makes it almost impossible for people to talk about them in a constructive manner and it just fosters anger and that's that's a problem mm -hmm. and sorry i've been saying pontified instead of pointified so i'll crack myself from now on well that's the french version i guess point. <laughs> oh point there you go that's my french influence going through <laughs> so let's move on to talk about consilience so this is this is the framework that you're applying in this book to help us understand the world in a very broad way and you know starting with the history of consilience it was coined by William Hewell in the 19th century, a famous scientist who coined the term scientist, as well as coining the terms physicist, uh, linguistics, so a polymath and a hard worker. Yeah. The next uh, point of the history is Edward O. Wilson, and I've got Wilson's book here as well oh, wow. as part of my uh, research. Uh, so in 1998, Wilson wrote a Have book. Have you read it? I've only skimmed it, I'm afraid. <laughs> Good book. Uh, so Wilson's book from 1998 is Consilience, the Unity of Knowledge. And now here in 2021, Tom Beekbain, you're talking about consilience again. So I think we should define it for our listeners. You know, it's it's a little bit amorphous, I think. It, it appears sometimes as a method or a framework or a perspective. You're fond of saying perspective or even a theory, but I know that consilience is anti-theory. So it seems like it's doing a lot of work, but it seems to shift a bit. So what's the best way to explain consilience to the listeners? Yeah, I use it in lots of different ways. Um... I have the advantage that uh, that not too many people know what consilience means, so I can sort of bastardize it to uh, my own ends. So when William Huell uh, coined it, he, he he thought about it as the jumping together, uh, com being uh, together in Latin and cilians being jump. So it, he, he saw it as the jumping together of different realms of knowledge with insights. And so I use it in terms of that but more broadly, how physics and chemistry are now indivisible, which is indivisible from biology and genetics. And now that sort of has, has grown into uh, paleobiology and archaeology and primatology. And, and, and now it's, it's really an artificial distinction to sort of treat all of those things as separate because we can see that there's so many connections between them. And, and my argument is that consilience is now a point in uh, our history where there have been so many jumping togethers of all of these different disciplines that we can now understand in a very matter-of-fact and scientific way what's happening inside our bodies uh, and our neuronal systems. And that enables us to see that the way we thought we thought is not the way we thought. Our brains and our behavior comes about in ways that are completely different from the ways you've been reading about in, you know, Plato and Kant and Hume and, and so on. Now we can just recognize what's happening biologically. And I certainly favor that approach. I mean, I talked about this in my very first episode, <laughs> you know, taking a, a naturalistic science-based approach to philosophical questions. And of course, philosophy still has a place because science hasn't got a full picture. So philosophy is there to fill in the gaps and to extrapolate. But I think in the 21st century, we have to start from a place of our best scientific theories if we're going to answer these questions. Yeah. 
I mean, you, you've, you've got to accept the findings of frontline researchers and you can take it from there. I mean, the beautiful thing in my view about consilience is that while you recognize that, that science is, is really hard edged and sort of objective, and I'm sure we'll get into, you know, just how objective objective is, it actually frees you up to recognize the power of ideas and the different realms of human experience that make life what it, what it is. I mean, you know, for, for me, like getting up this morning and sitting in the sun outside and uh, looking at my iPad and, you know, making a smoothie and, and thinking about Ireland and all the experiences I've had in your beautiful country, those are deeply meaningful ways of being and, and consilience doesn't try and explain those away. It says your neuronal mechanisms are quite astonishing, but astonishing in a completely different way than scientists have historically thought about the brain. And, and also different from how philosophers have thought about human behavior in the brain and free will and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I would like to provide a, a slightly more to dig in a bit more for our listeners as to what elements consilience really contains. So I did a bit of a forensic dive into the ways you talk about it in the book. Oh, no. Um, oh, no, but I, it aligns quite easily with what you've said. Okay. So I, I kind of saw four different elements and you've already talked about two of them in a lot of detail. So there's the unity of knowledge. There's this, you know, coming together of psychology and neurobiology and the humanities and art. So, yeah. And this aligns with, you know, with, with Wilson's aim. And there's also the idea of this convergence between different claims and different fields. So I think Wilson's definition of consilience is uh, interlocking of causal explanation across disciplines. So when we have converging lines of evidence, this kind of informs our, our certainty about certain claims about the world. But there were kind of two more elements that jumped out to me as part of consilience. And one is a kind of a metaphysical distinction between reality and construct. So you talk a lot about, you know, from the standpoint of consilience, science is a word. So we distinguish the, the constructs of the human mind from the things that exist materially in the world. So that seems to be one more element of consilience. And then the fourth thing I recognized was, of course, the bottom-up explanations. So, you know, as you say in chapter four, consilience is a bottom-up perspective that allows us to investigate specific things, peoples and ideas, and make judgments about their correctness and utility. So that's also sneaking in a bit of metaphysics, you know, we're, we're making judgments about correctness or truth about the world. And we're also making judgments about utility, you know, kind of a pragmatism, but that's all coming bottom-up. So how does that all align with the way you see consilience? Yeah, that, that's good. That's a good summary. I would make a couple of observations, actually one observation. And then if you don't mind, I'll try and explain some of the concepts uh, about consilience that relate to extrapolator and the way you've explained things earlier in, uh, in earlier episodes of your podcast. Mm -hmm. You use this phrase of Edward O. Wilson's, the unity of knowledge. And I believe that... Um, even though Edward O. Wilson is just a, a, a marvelous person, scientist, writer, humanitarian, uh, I'm a huge fan of his. He believed in the unity of knowledge. He believed that science was going to enable us to understand other realms of human life, including uh, spirituality and the humanities. I, I think he was wrong, frankly. Knowledge turns out to be a very small part of the way the world works and, and the way our brain works. In, in fact, our brain really doesn't operate using knowledge. 
we have ideas and we can communicate those ideas, but, it, but it's not a knowledge machine. It doesn't contain information. Uh, and that's, that's a radical break from the way scientists have traditionally thought about the brain. They've thought about the brain as being sort of a computational information processing device, a switching device, and it's not. Mm -hmm. And we know that now because of science. I, I want to get to this thing about bottom-up because um, I think it's very easy to misunderstand it. And one of the, the themes in Extrapolator is the distinction between, I guess, realism and reality and, and ideas. And so I, I, I want to I, I try and summarize this for you. So reality is what it is. Okay, so let's say we eliminated all human beings from the universe and, and all animals, all life on Earth. We eliminated those things. The Earth would still be here. The planets would still be here. Matter would still be here. Everything would still be here. And, and it would be real. Okay. Now just imagine that there's a, an extraterrestrial being of some sort that happens not to operate with the neuronal mechanisms, the eyes and the ears and, and the devices that we have. But, but let's say that this extraterrestrial being doesn't actually register objects. It, it can register neutrinos and which are around us and we have no conception of and and it, it and it sort of senses everything as a as, as sort of quantum fields it, it's experiencing exactly the same thing but it doesn't it doesn't attach words it doesn't call you know this thing a planet and this thing a thing and and, so, and something else a liquid because it doesn't have those categories so reality is reality without human beings okay now, when human beings come along with our brain, we start to use the devices that we have, our eyes and the ears, and, and, and we can feel things and we can see things and we can describe those things. And our brain has this remarkable capacity of distilling complex inputs uh, from the eyes and, and the ears and, and distilling them into things that we can then attach words to. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is, and I think it's important because in some of your earlier episodes, I, I see a conflation between sort of reality and objective and realism and this and that. I see it pretty clearly that reality is reality without humans. But as soon as we start um, experiencing that reality as, as individuals, we are actually building that sense of what's out there not not only because of our senses, you know, our sense of touch and hearing and, and sight and smell and so on, but but also because of our social interactions. It's through our social interactions that we attach words to things, sort of brands, if you like, mm -hmm. and have attendant muscular responses, and, and we attach this thing we call emotion to that. Yeah, so let's dig in here. I was going to save the metaphysics for a little later, but listen, we're okay. here. It's never too soon for metaphysics. <laughs> so I was thinking about this distinction a lot because you do drive it home in the book, this distinction between you know, reality is reality, and then there's 
apart from that, there's the categorizations that humans apply to the world. And you give the examples of temperature, energy, information. Science is itself a, a categorization, so there's no material existence and mathematics. Mm-hmm. So you distinguish between these things. Mm-hmm. So you stand by this claim that temperature and mathematics, that these don't exist, right? That you're an anti-realist about these things. They're extremely useful concepts, mm-hmm. but they're not material things in them in themselves. I mean, scientists exist. The, the devices that scientists um, use exist. There's a lot of things that exist, but but science is a is a very broad category, and depending on who you're talking with, uh, it means different things. T- to me, I see I see it as a massive category that changes. It, well, it's it's like a brand that changes its meaning depending on who you're talking to. Let's talk a bit about mathematics. I think this is a good place to. I totally agree with your approach. These are very important questions to ask. What exists? outside of human minds and what exists inside of human minds. This is, you know, questions about the mind, independent world are exactly what I'm about on this podcast. But I think mathematics is a tricky case. So in the book, you do claim that mathematics is just a human conception. It doesn't exist in the world. And this is kind of, you're opposing kind of this extreme realist position, which is called Platonism, you know, because it follows Plato's theory of forms. Sure. You're opposed to the idea that numbers exist in this non-physical realm. You know, I think that's a bit wacky for the 21st century. And I think it's also a bit of a straw man because there's maybe a more moderate realist position that says, well, mathematical truths exist outside of minds. So, you know, the fact that two plus two equals four, you know, regardless of what we call it, you know, the language or the, the numerals, what we write down, it's just the structural relation of the fact that two things and two things make four things. Maybe that's not a construct of the human mind. You know, maybe we didn't create or invent that structural relation. So how do you think that influences the idea that mathematics is a human conception? Well, mathematics is a human conception. Uh, I mean, the world and the universe is, is quite remarkable because it, it, it's particulate. And, and at a quantum level, even space uh, and energy is, is granular, uh, which is really quite remarkable. And I'm sure if it wasn't granular, the universe wouldn't exist. Well, I'm not sure, but that's my guess. Um, but when, when it comes to mathematics, and, and I've got a, a book on the bookshelf behind me, by uh, by Lakoff and Nunez called Where Mathematics Comes From, which is a it's a big tome, uh, and I rather love that book, and it it sort of digs into what numbers are, and and when you understand what numbers are, they're actually metaphors. The number one can stand for a thing; it can represent a distance, it can rep- represent um, a volume of liquid, and and it's quite remarkable how the the meaning of numbers has changed through time. Uh, in in the medieval period, distances weren't viewed as being on a continuum. Uh, distances were viewed as as being particulate. Uh, that, that's why people use chains and grains and so on to represent lengths. It's it's only more recently, uh, in the last few hundred years, that we've we've been we've been conceiving distances as, as as sort of smooth. So so mathematics. Uh, is is absolutely a, a human construct, um, and um, and 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 I guess one of the deepest mysteries of the universe is why m- mathematics can represent the behavior of the world with such remarkable precision, and 
you know, we, we still know so little about that, that relationship between numbers and the behavior of matter. You know, why do prime numbers exist and, and how are they represented in the world? And, and, and I, I do go into some level of um, explanation in my book as to the relationship between the golden ratio and the Fibonacci series. It's fascinating. And, and what happens in a cell. And, and it happens that, oh, okay, well, the way microtubules and, and the sort of the cellular dynamics works can result in the Fibonacci series and, and the shape of spirals on a snail's shell and, and, and the sh shape of galaxies. It's just in a sort of very me mechanistic sort of a, a, a way. And, uh, and I was quite gratified when I, I, I bounced uh, those ideas off various mathematics professors. And, and one of them said, well, that's not intuitive. And for a math professor who's uh, into number theory to actually say that something that I've written is non-intuitive is, is, is right. Oh, OK, that's pretty cool. You've got one level deeper than the person on the street, at least. Yeah, and one level deeper than her. She, you know, math professor in Dublin, as it happens. <laughs> and yeah, I, I remember the Fibonacci sequence in particular. I mean, this is a long time ago in the days of early YouTube. I used to love those videos of the spirals in the leaves of plants and the shells of snails. And it's incredible that there is a mathematical way to explain these things. So that's certainly marvellous. Yeah. Yeah, the... Um the, the Mandelbrot set and the patterns that you can derive from a tiny equation, I, I, I describe how the Mandelbrot equation is, is shorter than the word equation. Uh, mind you, it uses complex numbers, which uh, aren't that easy to get your head around. And, and from that very, very simple equation, you get stunningly beautiful patterns that are endlessly varied. I mean, to infinity, like there is no end to them. And, and, and I find that beyond mind-blowing. And on the topic of maths, you know, uh, I, I wanted to talk about maths before we talked about the metaphysics of maths, but we've done it backwards. So now that we've questioned the metaphysics of maths, <laughs> let's get into the topic of actual maths itself. Because okay. this is a, a core part of your arguments, you know, because you talk about complex systems. So a complex system is a very, it's a, a mathematical description of a system. And you give examples of snowflakes, chemical reactions, erosion, financial markets, wealth distribution. I mean, so many phenomena, both natural and human, you know, seem to follow these mathematical laws. And this is part of one of your core claims that everything can be understood, at least in specific terms, from the bottom up. So maybe talk a bit about, you know, bottom up explanations and the mathematics of complex systems and how it's a tool for explaining everything. Yeah. I should put a little asterisk by this understand everything uh, now because which is the uh, title of your book just for the record <laughs> it's the title of my book <laughs> but I'm a marketer and that means I'm an inveterate <laughs> liar um, like if I if I'd written a book and and been truthful I'd say you know this once you think you understand a little you realize how little you know so the book should be like how to understand nothing but um, but it wouldn't sell very well. So I, I say how to understand everything. And, and I mean that in terms of really, once you understand how the, how the brain works, you become a lot more modest uh, in, in uh, y y you know, one's personal cockiness of, and sureness of, of knowing. You know, I, I need more and more just to question every word that people use because um, 
I, I increasingly think about the world differently to other people. And so I've, I've got to keep um, sort of holding myself back. Um, but over the last 25 years, this new area of mathematics has, has been blossoming, which is, is, is chaos and complex criticality and ubiquity and uh, randomness and, and, and uh, which, which has given us another way of uh, explaining and modeling the way s systems work. Uh, and I've got Stephen Wolfram's book on, on the shelf behind me about new kind of mathematics and uh, cellular automata and how just extremely simple rules like mathematical and computational rules can create unendingly wonderful and unexpected patterns. And so this new area of computing and mathematics has, has enabled us to realize that, oh, okay, the brain doesn't need to be programmed, uh, air quotes, um, by evolution, because evolution isn't a, isn't a person that programs things. Evolution is is itself it's an emergent system, and and but we we very often anthropomorphize nature and evolution, and it's a good way of explaining things. But it it's frankly it's not the way the world works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's there's this new way of understanding uh, how how things come about, and it it's opened our eyes to, frankly, how our brains make sense of the unending uh, complexity and variability and the patterns that we observe in the world. And I think that's consilience. It, it's, it's just uh, opening our eyes to understanding ourselves and society. Yeah, and that's the amazing insight from complex systems theory, that if you look at a system like the brain or a hurricane or the spread of a pandemic, it seems impossible to explain. That's the kind of top-down view if you're looking at the system as a whole. But if you instead take the bottom-up view, if you look at the individual components and how they interact, suddenly the system is, is quite easily explained using mathematical laws. And more than that, that the, the patterns that emerge, the behaviour that emerges, emerges quite beautifully and in a mathematical way from the behavior of individual components. So that's the, the bottom-up approach of complex systems theory and of consilience. And I actually took a course on complex systems theory last year, and I, uh, it was a, a course that also taught you Python, how to model these things oh, in yeah. code. Okay. And, and the, the experiment failed. I have, I've never tried coding uh, until then. <laughs> and uh, you're, not, you're not programming your self-driving car right now. I'm not programmed to program, apparently. Uh, so I'm sticking to uh, words for the time being. But I did learn a lot about complex systems. And it was actually, it was at the start of the pandemic. Our classes got cut off in the middle because the pandemic broke out. And our professor was Chinese. So she had this amazing insight. One of our last lectures was her saying, my parents back home have been talking about this this virus called the coronavirus, which is sweeping across China. Let me model it for you in using complex system theory. So she did the cellular automata agent to agent um, modeling of how explaining the differences between social distancing and, you know, if if one cell, one person interacts with five or 10 or 20, uh, how fast is the infection spread? And she showed us these beautiful mathematical patterns for how a virus would spread based on the behavior of individual people. So that was, I thought, one beautiful example of how complex system theory can be applied to the world. Yeah. You had front row seats there to, to what was happening. Mm -hmm. Th this this whole matter is... is um 
deeply pertinent to a whole lot of different subject areas. Uh, and, and I know you're interested in in climate change and and, and animal welfare. And uh, and I'm interested in the psychological aspects of those things as well. But in all, all of these areas that involve human populations and, and the brain, uh, it's it's very easy to fall into using sort of um, traditional scientific ways of thinking about things where like large numbers of things could be handled as though they were either random or they had significant mass. So for instance, you know, with pandemic, you can sort of say, well, the more people that get the, the virus, the sort of the more mass it has. And so when, when things are heavier, they're harder to stop and they sort of move. But when you when you think about it in terms of complex systems, it's it's more like seeing a flock of starlings, a murmuration, you know, where there's this huge thing in the sky, but, you know, just pop a little hawk somewhere and that massive thing can just change direction in a fraction of a second. And so like from the bottom up, you, you realize that something that looks big and stable and moving, uh, oh, you know, we've sort of got this virus under control now, or, you know, sort of traditional ways of, of understanding big things just break down. And that's the same with, with markets and financial systems and, and indeed social systems. Let's talk about the brain a bit, because the brain is one of these systems that, you know, we can explain or understand using complex systems theory. And consciousness is one topic that you talk about in the book. Uh, and I think one nice, neat example you give in chapter four is consciousness being an evolutionary byproduct. So I think it was Gould who said that consciousness was like a spandrel. It's like this piece <laughs> of architecture in, a, in the ceiling of a cathedral that doesn't, it doesn't like do any necessary real work. It's just part of how cathedrals are built. Yeah. It just appears. Uh, so how do you think about that explanation for consciousness? Well, well, consciousness, consciousness is not a byproduct. Stephen Jay Gould uh, was a, an amazing writer, and I love his books, like mm -hmm. Wonderful Life is a beautiful book uh, about the Burgess Shales. But um, uh, early on, I don't know, when in his, in his 30s maybe, uh, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And, uh, and so he became somewhat um, religious in his outlook. And, and I think that, that colored the way he thought about human beings and the brain and evolution. And um, I, I just think his explanations um, just haven't held up. And that's not to diminish, you know, his, his contributions and his, and the beauty of his writing, uh, uh, which I've been mesmerized by, you know, for many, many, many years. But anyway, so, so back to consciousness, 300, 400, 500 million years ago, re really a, a billion years ago, we started getting the, the basic building blocks of life, the sort of the components, the, 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 the structures and the systems um, started forming. And, and, and you can think of it like Lego blocks where the microtubules and, and, and the DNA and the RNA and those systems started to take shape and, and, and some of the sort of the basic building blocks like bilateral symmetry, three layers in the body and neurons and muscles and this and that. Uh, that those started to take shape way, way, way back. And and then if you look at Stephen Jay Gould's um, descriptions of um, the Cambrian period where uh, animals started to actually move through open water, 
for the first time and and not not just sort of stay stuck to the bottom of the ocean or i guess stuck on a rock at that point animals needed to start forming a sense of what was happening nearby to them so they could um move towards food or away from a predator and 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 in order for them to do that the neurons needed to figure out what was happening remotely and and in my view well that's that's just the beginning of consciousness because that's what you know that's what our senses are doing now so i in in explaining our neuronal mechanisms and making sense of deep homology i just sort of say well this is obviously what consciousness is all about now it happens that that my explanation of consciousness is not is not in the least bit mystical but i think it's really quite novel but i it's not like i came up with some some crazy theory or an idea it's just like this is this is what people have been discovering and 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 i'm just trying to think of a way to write about it in a book so for me we don't need to become sort of metaphysical and philosophical and spiritual to describe what consciousness is it it's just biology it's just the way our neurons and sense organs work and 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 what happens in a human what happens in a human brain is is frankly very very little different from what's happening in a bird's brain or your cat or dog's brain or uh, the brains of other mammals dolphins or or elephants or whatever uh, you know we there's this scientific mythology that the human brain is oh so marvelous and you know we use reason and consciousness and 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 frankly frankly all of that just leaves me cold i just think it's i think it's hilarious i, I like it just it's just as mark twain said you know it's it's just us imagining that the whole eiffel tower is being constructed for the lick of paint that's on the top it's so arrogant and and anti-science and and so that's that's where i am i'm at with consciousness yeah and i really like your you know neurobiological approach to the question of consciousness and one of the main components of your explanation is this idea of distinguishing self versus world the you know, the organism distinguishing as you say things that are part of their own body versus things that are part of the world so i'll just pull a quote from chapter 5 because i think it illustrates the the argument quite nicely that very early in the evolution of mobile animals, the nervous system would have been able to distinguish between nerve impulses caused by me and those caused by out there. So consciousness allows animals to differentiate between me stimuli and out there stimuli. And I think this lines up with with things I've been reading from neurobiology. There's a a paper I've mentioned on this podcast before uh, by Franco Fabro and his team called Evolutionary Aspects of Self and World Consciousness. And he points to this common brain structure, you know, in all vertebrates. It's, well, for him, it's a, a basal subcortical system and a forebrain system. I don't know what that means uh, in neurobiology, but uh, this this common brain structure is shared by all vertebrates, homo sapiens, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and even some fish. So this is evidence of a common ability to distinguish self versus world. So I think that's quite a neat way to explain, you know, the neurobiology of consciousness and how it's shared by lots of vertebrates not just humans yeah i just want to add something to that that that, sure. that that betrays that i'm not an academic uh, and i'm a, a bit of a, a i guess you could say a shit kicker and that and, and and i can do that because i'm not trying to keep any of my colleagues happy i'm not part of a an academic institution and so i, I can say what i th- think and you know people can 
take it or leave it. But this traditional idea that uh, that neurons sort of have very specific functions, um, you know, some neurons are for seeing and some for hearing and some are motor and some are emotional, and they're different parts of the brain that, are, that do different things, I think is uh, is largely bullshit, strangely. And, and of course, some neurons are connected to the eyes and some connected to the ears. And of course, there's a, a, a pattern. But, but I think more recently in, in neurophysiology, there's a, there's a growing realization that neurons react to everything. Stick a, a, a probe into the brain to measure what a single neuron's doing. It's firing all the time. It's, every neuron is on a knife edge of criticality. It, it, it's firing action potentials. Um, maybe dozens of times a second, and I use the the metaphor of a neuronal orchestra. In essence, each each neuron is playing a tune, and its tunes vary with what its neighbors are doing. And so the the, the idea that neurons make a sharp distinction between what's happening in the brain, or uh, outside, or in the body you know, the left hand versus the right hand or whatever. The, the notion that, there's a sh that, that these neurons sort of make a sharp distinction between these things isn't the way it's turning out. It's the combination of the totality of our, our history, uh, the, the context, the, you know, the, our bodily state, our needs, uh, the, the chemicals that are suffusing through our brain and, 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 and via our bloodstream. It's a combination of those things that um, are, are affecting the tunes that are being played in in the the orchestra. So I, I I take a really contrary position to mainstream neurophysiology, mm -hmm. uh, where you know there's this this object that that has different bits doing different things, and, and neurons are specialized because they're not. You know they're extremely versatile and plastic. Chop out a part of the brain, and and all the other neurons say, oh, "Okay, you know, let, let's step up here." Of course, they're not actually saying let's step up, but they, <laughs> they they just they they reconfigure and and start playing the tunes that are required and and, and that have been missing. Does that make sense, or do you think, "Oh my God, this <laughs> this guy's crazy"? Well, I have to say, I don't have enough of a background in neurophysiology to you know to push back in any way. But I, I do love your metaphor of the neuronal orchestra in the book. But talking a bit more broadly about approaching questions like consciousness from this angle, because I do love talking about the neurophysiology of the organism and using that as a way to explain consciousness. Now, I think we should be a little bit humble about what we can explain and what we can't explain. So I think in the book you do, you know, just like the title, you like to uh, to put out a bold, marketable statement that consciousness has been explained. I know everything. <laughs> I'm just kind of thinking of the, the aspects that maybe aren't yet explained or explainable by empirical approaches to, to the organism. And I'm thinking about the kind of phenomenal character of consciousness, the qualitative character of consciousness. There's a philosopher, Thomas Nagel, who uh, uses the uh, the example of being a bat. So he says there's, there is something it is like to be a bat, to experience the world, not in terms of patterns of light on the retina, but in terms of echolocation. And that's how they, they navigate the world. So if there is a qualitative phenomenal character that it is like to be a bat, 
And it is that part of consciousness that is so hard to pin down. And, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the, the biological approach to explaining consciousness, but I'm hesitant to say that we can explain the phenomenal aspect yet. I'm not, do, you, do you feel like there's more to explain uh, about consciousness? Yeah, that that's a fascinating point because on the one hand, I, I, I don't want to sound arrogant. Oh, you know, we, we know everything. Um, because I, as, I, as I said earlier, I, I think the more we understand about, let's say, the way a cell works, it doesn't matter whether it's a neuron or a muscle, muscle cell or a, a cell in the, the wall of the gut, the, the more we understand about the, the workings of a cell, the more we realize we we simply don't understand and i think the same thing is applies to to, to gravity and and neutrinos and, and and elementary particles so science is full of, of mysteries and, I, and 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 that's one of the reasons i love science so much not not because it, it's useful but but because it's deeply mystifying i mean it's useful as well and and and, and we should never diminish the, the utility of, of science. So, so ha- having made that caveat of epistemological humility, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to come at it now and say that the that that, f- that feeling of fullness um, and you know what it is to be conscious is absolutely easily understood. You know, there's there's no mystery there. Here's an example. So, you know, when I was um, thinking about chatting with you, I, I listened to uh, Extrapolator and, and loved it, and, and I, I loved your, your accent, and I realized you're a musician, and um, that you're from Dublin, and, and I, I, I just have sort of floods of emotions that relate to those things because, you know, when I was 12 years old, I went past through Dublin, I w- went to Dingle Bay and slept in a caravan with my family and and picked up a, a pollock on the beach and took it back to the chef and and you know when i was 17 i cycled around ireland and spent a couple of days in in dublin and went to trinity library and and uh, when i was crossing the border to ulster I, I tried to pretend that i was american because i was afraid i was going to get murdered uh, or uh, you know because that was during the troubles and so there were there were significant risks but you know i, I i've just got s- so many emotions relating to ireland and uh, the irish and dublin you, you know so so when i'm talking with you all all of those things affect my sense of me and being and that's so deep and rich and i can luxuriate in it and it's one of the benefits of getting old you know, you, you, you have more and more uh, experiences and, and associations. And so, you know, just give us any word and I, I, I can come up with, you know, t- 20 sort of stories and anecdotes and weird things. So for me, when you understand what consciousness is and how the brain works, it gives you a deeper appreciation of the richness of the moment. No, knowing the mechanics doesn't diminish that at all. It's It's like wow, uh, it's, you know, it's like being at a good concert and experiencing a, a mind-blowing event. Mm-hmm. Does that convince you that, um, that if you like, the science doesn't necessarily detract from consciousness and consciousness doesn't need to be explained in mystical or metaphysical terms? Mm-hmm. 
have I convinced you in the last five minutes? I'm certainly sympathetic, you know, to having both the, the biological perspective and this phenomenological story of what it is like for a person like Tom to have gone through his life with these experiences. That is part of, that's part of your being. I like that. I like that way of explaining it. Does it make sense from a philosophical standpoint? Well, a lot of philosophical arguments are amenable to objections from all over the place. So I don't think anything is ever conclusive in philosophy. I think we can just keep picking it apart all day because it isn't answered. That's philosophy is the stuff that we can't, you know, empirically determine yet. So we have to discuss the ins and outs. I want to uh, become objectionable, if you don't mind, Jeff, because sure. I, what I want you to do is write write a definitive, well, not a definitive, but I, I want you to write um, a post-consilience book uh, about philosophy, because I, I think consilience enables us to understand many of the things that the great thinkers of, of the past have been musing about, and it enables us to sort of cut out the bullshit. Because once you understand how the brain creates reality, creates words, uh, how interpersonal communications happen, this incredible um, facility of the brain to be instantly and fluidly tribal, which I, I'd love to talk to you about because it's so, you know, it's so visible, particularly in academia, mm-hmm. um, but never talked about. So I want you to write a book about the philosophy post-consilience because the thinkers of the past um, were, were spending hours like arguing about, you know, what is free will? And, and I would say, once you understand what consilience is all about and how our systems work, that question is just a null question. It's just not an interesting question. It's just not worth spending any time on, frankly. It's a stupid question, and I can explain why. Um, so consilience, and, and when, I, when I use the word consilience, I mean the discoveries of frontline scientists that are enabling us to understand the reality of what's happening in, in our brain so we can understand ourselves and our fallibilities like never before, enables you to advance philosophy to the things that are genuinely interesting and have yet to be figured out, rather than musing about, uh, as Edward O. Wilson would say, the lucubriations of this or that academic. I, I, I'm i very sympathetic to that view, and I certainly agree that philosophers have been, you know, arguing about things that are now solved empirically, and they're going to continue to argue about things that are now solved. And that's part of my, you know, argument for extrapolation, that if we're going to do philosophy in the 21st century, we have to start with our best theories, and then, you know, fill in the gaps, the gaps that need to be filled. So I think your your big claim there is that these gaps have been filled, let's stop, you know, talking about it from the armchair, move on. Yeah. The only thing I'd push back on is to say that I think we might disagree slightly about what gaps are left to be filled. Sure. So I would say there's still a gap in consciousness. There's still a gap, perhaps, in free will. But we can certainly, you know, look to empirical work to answer these questions. And we can pack away. So, I mean, in the history of philosophy, psychology, you know, biology, physics, these were all philosophical questions by natural philosophers in the last centuries and millennia. And we now pack them away as being no longer philosophical because they're empirical. So I certainly... You know, I agree with your ambition that in the future we're going to have a science of, of consciousness, a science of free will, a science of subjectivity, and there won't be any more room for philosophical debate. So it's just a question of where are the gaps now and yeah, which gaps are left to be filled, I suppose. 
Yeah, there'll all be there'll always be room for philosophical debates, but but they they should be different philosophical debates. Uh, we 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 don't need to rehash sort of Platonism and Aristotelian way of ways of thinking about the world. We should be able to get beyond that now. And and by the way, not for one moment do I think that my my book is the last word on these things. I, I've been actually very surprised that that I haven't heard more substantive objections to some of the the things that I write about uh, and and I've sent my book to many academics and, and you know many of them haven't I'm sure read it apart from the bits that mention them but but I've also had feedback from many people with PhDs in neurophysiology and physics and math and so on and 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 I really haven't had anyone who said that it's wrong but I'm looking forward to hearing that So thanks very much, Tom, for coming on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff. You're a you're a great guy, great listener, and thanks for reading my book and really making an effort to understand some of the very, very deep and and uh, challenging concepts in it. Yeah, we've covered lots of ground. It's been very interesting, and I'm sure your next book, whatever project you have coming up next, to be back on the podcast. Then, thanks so much, Jeff. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me. Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media on Facebook and on Instagram at extrapolatorpod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.